So I'm driving in the car with my husband Eric the other day, and he's driving and I'm in the passenger seat. He turns to me and asks, hey, Jaden, are you going to put a picture of the Riddler on the cover art for your podcast? So I go, uh, no, I wasn't thinking about it. Why'd you ask? He says, well, the Riddler, one of Batman's villains from the DC universe, his name is Edward Nigma, but they shorten it to Enigma so that it sounds like Enigma because uh, he's all mysterious and creepy. I consider myself a pretty big DC fan, so I was surprised that I hadn't made that connection before, and I looked it up online just to be sure, and at least in some of the comic versions, the Riddler's name really is Enigma, and they shorten it like that. So I told Eric he was right, and I had totally forgotten all about the Riddler's real name. I said, I would have thought you'd quote Patrick from Spongebob before you'd ever quote DC Comics, and he immediately just starts quoting the exact same quote I'd been thinking of and says in Patrick's goofy voice, the inner machinations of my mind are an enigma. (laughs) So Eric and I decided that day, as if we were discussing the fate of some big important thing that the podcast should have this sort of dual personality. You know, it should be mysterious and dark like the Riddler sometimes, but other times it should be weird and funny like Patrick Star. In some episodes, we're going to be able to have both those personalities. We can have some fun while also being creepy. So maybe one day we can get some cool cover art with both the Riddler and Patrick on there, but we'll see. Welcome to the podcast, everyone. I'm Jaden, and this is Straight Up Enigmas. This is our second official episode, and I want to share a pretty cool announcement for the show before we dive right on into today's story. Uh, I reached out and contacted a lady by the name of Jennifer Jones, not to be confused with Jessica Jones, although Jennifer is also super awesome and looks just like Jessica now that I think about it, but she has her own website dedicated to the history uh, behind things like urban legends and haunted locations, and that website is called The Dead History. I asked Jennifer for permission to share some of her stories on the podcast, and she agreed. So it's pretty awesome that we'll get to share some of her creepy, real stories about some folklore and legends that she has researched. It's pretty exciting to already see that we're getting access to some of these more popular story archives when we're only in our second episode. So what all of this means for you is that we've got some super cool episodes coming up on the show that I'm really excited about. Let's go ahead now and uh, get started with today's episode. I just have to say, I had never heard of this story before, and it's just so incredibly weird. Guys, like, it's one of the strangest things I've ever heard, and and it's all true. It really happened. I'm going to go ahead and give you a little bit of background on the setting for the characters here. So Southern California, in the spring of 1928, was in its prime. 
The age of silent film ended in about 1927, so the golden age of Hollywood pretty much began right after that. In Southern California then, in the late 1920s, agriculture was booming, the movie industry was transforming the area, and it was basically the perfect place to live, except for Christine Collins and her family. On March 10th, 1928, Christine Collins had every parent's nightmare come true when she realized that her nine-year-old son, Walter, was missing. She had uh, given him some money to go see a movie at a nearby theater, but he had never come home. So she calls the police, and while the police think that Walter has just run away, Christine, you know, she immediately fears the worst. She thinks, I know my son, he would never just run away, so she comes to this terrible conclusion that he's been kidnapped. So now with this suspicion that maybe Walter has been taken, the police start to scan the Collins' street and the neighborhood of Lincoln Heights where they live in LA. So they go to the, the local thugs of the area, they uh, question them, they interrogate them on the whereabouts of Walter, but the search brings up nothing. And it's not until witnesses were sought out that a neighbor by the name of Mrs. A. Baker claimed that she actually saw Walter in the back of a car begging to be released in the company of, quote, two foreign-looking people. In a different article I read, it was actually a gas station attendant named Richard Struthers that reported seeing a dead boy wrapped in newspaper in the back of a car when a, quote, foreign couple stopped to ask for directions. A man named C.V. Staley followed the couple when they left the gas station. The couple kind of strangely stopped for a few moments in front of the police station and they, they sped away and Staley lost them. So when the police showed Struthers, this gas station attendant, and Staley, the guy who had driven after them, when he shows them Walter Collins' photo, they both said he was the boy in the back of the car. And then soon, other tips come in about a couple traveling across the state with a boy who was begging them to let him go. So, you guys, with eyewitness accounts, you've got to sometimes take them with a grain of salt because humans make mistakes, you know, and we're unreliable. If a witness says that they saw a guy in a blue shirt robbing a bank, and they find out that the robber's shirt was actually green. I mean, there was still a guy robbing a bank, you know what I mean? The big, important part of the story is still there. So just because some details are off, it doesn't mean that everything the witness said is just automatically not true. Other neighbors uh, gave information as well. They said that days prior to Walter's abduction, an Italian-looking man and a woman were asking for Walter's address. But all this information, all these leads, lead to nothing. There's just no trace of Walter. The police have no idea where he is or who has taken him. And they search Lincoln Park Lake for Walter's body, and after a huge, massive search of the area, there's still no trace of Walter. So he's been missing now for a little over a month, and there's just no trace of him. The LAPD the Los Angeles Police Department, they were already under investigation for several corruption scandals, and so their inability to find Walter is kind of embarrassing for them. The police chief, James Davis, 
was under a lot of pressure to solve the case. So he's, he's feeling this pressure. Collins' father, he was in Folsom State Prison, which, I mean, it makes me think of the Johnny Cash song, right? He thought that former prison inmates were responsible for his son's disappearance because they wanted to get revenge. Walter's dad, he had worked in the prison's cafeteria and was responsible for reporting other inmates' infractions. So with that kind of a job, it's totally possible that he had made some enemies that wanted some revenge against him, you know, for being a kind of a snitch. All of this investigation is going on, but still no leads are coming up, and Christine Collins is just devastated. She remains hopeful that, that one day she'll hear news of Walter, and the months go by, and she still has to go to her daily job. She has to continue with her life, but she's holding on to this hope that maybe Walter is still alive. She doesn't get a lot of sleep. She she probably is going through this depression, but she holds on to this hope that he's alive. With her holding on to this hope that he's alive, five months after Walter's disappearance, a miracle happens. Walter has been found. It's now August, and Christine gets the news that Walter was found and alive in a place called DeKalb, Illinois. It's hard to imagine just how much joy and love and excitement that she's feeling when she hears this news. All of her persistent hoping has paid off. The police put Walter on a train straight to L.A. so that he can come home to his mom, Christine. Pretty much the whole town, the police force, everyone is super excited for this happy celebration of this reuniting of mother and son. Christine, she goes to the train station. The police are really proud of themselves for finding Walter. Christine is standing there on the platform watching the train approach with Walter on it. And she's super excited to see her son again, you know, after five agonizing months. And as soon as this little boy steps off of the train, Christine immediately says to everyone that the boy getting off the train was not her son. She says, this boy standing in front of me, he's not Walter. He's not my son. Captain J.J. Jones of the LAPD could not believe what Christine was saying. He said, you've gone through a traumatic experience. Walter has also gone through a traumatic experience. He might seem different, maybe all these months from being gone. Maybe he looks, you know, different because he's older, he's a little bit haggard because he's been wandering around. But Christine totally just rejects Captain Jones's explanation. She says, I, I know my son, all right? I'm a mother, I know my own son, no matter what the circumstances are. But Captain Jones does not take Christine's word for it. And he's, he says, under no circumstances do I want it to be known that we made a mistake, that the LAPD made a mistake, because remember, they're already kind of under this scrutiny, and they were already in, under investigation for a lot of other corruption-type scandals. So trying to avoid humiliation, Jones tells Christine to take Walter home and, quote, try him out for a while to see if her memory would clear up. So he goes, 
just take him home and try him out as if he's like a car salesman and he's saying here's the keys go ahead and take the car out for a spin and maybe it'll grow on you take this couch home and just try it out in your living room and see what it looks like just try this kid out christine feeling the pressure from both the public and the police she agrees to take the boy home and then right after that police start to question walter in hopes of finding his abductor so they ask him who was your kidnapper how did he take you how did you end up in illinois but police and doctors are unable to get hardly anything from him he says little to nothing it's as if he's keeping a secret but no one can get walter to say anything about what had happened to him christine is still insisting that she knows that this boy is not walter but she agrees to take him home and care for him. And she's still wanting to prove that she's right and that her son, her real son, is still out there. Christine gets some dental work done on this on this boy, on, on this boy Walter that they found and brought home. She compares his dental records to Walter's dental records to prove that there's a difference in these two boys. I mean, they're really, there's a difference between the dental records, and she takes them to Captain Jones, and I can just imagine her, you know, like laying them out on the table and just saying, look, I have actual evidence. Captain Jones, he still doesn't accept what she's saying. He doesn't believe Christine, even with the records, and he concludes that Christine was just trying to humiliate the LAPD. He says, I will not stand for the slander, especially by a woman. So what does he do? He has Christine Collins committed to a psychopathic ward in the general hospital. Okay, so he just says, okay, lady, you're super annoying. You are getting in the way of what we're doing here at the station. I'm just going to put you in jail, all right? I'm just going to take you to the hospital and tell everyone that you're psycho. And that's kind of what these psych wards and hospitals it's kind of what they were for back then if even family members if they had like a troublesome family member if someone was even suffering from depression something that they didn't understand back then family members would put their loved ones in psych wards just kind of so that they wouldn't have to deal with them and they were not great places so christine collins she remains in the hospital under harsh circumstances she was treated terribly she kind of started to get sick because they were giving her all these different forms of medicine to try and bring her to her senses so that she can see that this boy is actually the real walter 10 days pass and she's in the hospital good news finally come that released christine the believed walter this little boy that had been found he had confessed to not actually being walter the boy's name was really Arthur Hutchins Jr. His true name was discovered even after he provided another fake name of Billy Fields. So when questioned as to why Arthur would pose as Walter, Arthur admits that when he saw a picture of Walter and saw their resemblance, he saw an opportunity. He knew that if he pretended to be Walter, this little missing boy, he would get a one-way ticket to LA and that would increase his chances of making it to the movies and maybe even meet some of his favorite uh, stars and actors. 
the disappearance of Walter Collins resumes. Okay, and they have to start from scratch. They go very they go back to the very beginning, no leads. Christine is proven right, but it doesn't really bring her the this comfort because her son is still missing. So she returns to her job. She goes back to her normal life. She's still waiting to hear this news about Walter and she's saying, I hate to say it, but I told you so. I knew that this boy wasn't my son. Meanwhile, in a place called Wineville, California, unthinkable events were occurring. And it all starts to unravel when a girl named Jessie Clark starts to worry about her little brother Sanford. This gets a little confusing. There's a lot of characters that are about to be introduced. So try, try and follow along because this information is crucial to the rest of this story. So Jessie Clark, she lives in Canada with her mom. And she starts to worry about her little brother Sanford Clark, who had moved to California two years before with their uncle, Gordon Stewart Northcott and his mother, Sarah Louise. We've got Jesse Clark is living in Canada. Her little brother Sanford has moved to California with their uncle, Gordon Stewart Northcott and Gordon's mom, Sarah Louise. So Jesse, she becomes increasingly concerned for her brother Sanford's safety. She starts to worry that he's maybe not safe with their uncle Gordon. So she decides to travel down from Canada to find out, you know, what's going on. Jesse's fears of abuse and torment coming to Sanford from Gordon become very clear when she goes to visit. And not only does she see Gordon being violent and abusing towards Sanford, but he's also abusive towards her. So she quickly takes action. She goes home to Canada. She tells her mom everything that happened, and her mom, without hesitation, she calls the police and reports the abuse. When U.S. authorities got the information about Gordon Northcott's abusive actions, they make an immediate visit to his residence in Wineville, to a ranch out in the middle of nowhere. When Northcott saw the authorities driving up, he told Sanford, he said, go stall them as long as you possibly can. Sanford does, he does as he's told because he's afraid of his uncle. While Sanford is stalling, Gordon and his mother, Sarah Louise, flee. They run away and they weren't captured until they were found in British Columbia. And their capture was thanks to what Sanford had told the police about them. Sanford tells the police that Gordon Stewart Northcott and his mom, Sarah Louise, had murdered the missing boy, Walter Collins. Sanford also admits that Walter was not the only boy to have fallen victim to Northcott's hand. There's other boys that are remaining at the farm as well. So Sanford informs the police about everything that's been taking place. He tells the police that numerous boys were killed by an axe and that quicklime was poured over their bodies before disposing them. Just to familiarize you guys with what quicklime does, Oscar Wilde wrote a poem in 1898 about what the chemical compound does to bodies. The poem reads, Eats flesh and bone away, 
It eats the brittle bone by night and the soft flesh by day. It eats the flesh and bones by turns, but it eats the heart away. Pretty, pretty dark and grisly stuff, as you can see. Quicklime is pretty nasty. In shock and disbelief, the police, with Sanford by their side, they return to Wineville to dig up the remains that Sanford claims are there. Physical remains were found on the farm, proving that boys had actually been there, including two brothers, the Winslow brothers. They were two boys who had gone missing only 30 miles away from where Walter had been taken. Library books belonging to the boys and clothes had been found in the chicken coop where the Northcotts kept the boys. They locked them up in the chicken coop. There was even a note written by the Winslow brothers that was discovered that said, don't worry, we are fine. So they're not sure if that was actually written by the Winslow brothers. Maybe they were being forced to write it, and maybe Northcott was going to take the note to their families to make them think that the boys were okay. When Sanford takes the authorities to the graves, there were no bodies. There were only pieces of bodies that they found. Gordon Northcott and his mother had emptied the graves and burned the bodies and the remains in the desert before Jesse Clark could inform the authorities about the negative conditions that Sanford was in. So some human bones and a blood-soaked mattress turn up, and it did in fact prove that Nelson and Louis Winslow, Walter, and a ranch hand, Alvin Gothea, had all been tragically murdered. This article says that there are human bones and a blood-soaked mattress that prove that Walter Collins had died there, but hang on for the rest of the story because it gets, it gets a little more complicated, all right, a little crazier. It was December 3rd when Gordon Stewart Northcott confessed to the murders of the Winslow brothers and Alvin Gothea. Sarah Louise Northcott confessed to the murder of Walter Collins. Gordon Northcott hinted that there were more uh, there were more than four boys that fell victim to his murderous actions. And it's believed that Gordon and his mother have killed at least 20 boys. Gordon was found guilty of having committed three murders and was sentenced to hang. His mother, Sarah Louise, was also found guilty of the murder of Walter Collins and sentenced to life in prison. Christine Collins, she hears about the confession from Sarah Louise, but it doesn't satisfy her. Walter's entire body hadn't been found, so she still held out hope that her son might be alive. So she decides to go and talk to the man said to have taken Walter, Gordon Stewart Northcott. Collins met with Northcott to discuss whether or not he and his mother had truly killed her son. Though Northcott had previously admitted to the killings being done by them, he told Christine that they did not kill Walter. Christine, for some reason, she believes Northcott. She chooses to believe this man, this murderer, that he didn't take part in killing her son because it's almost as if she wants to hold on to this hope that Walter is going to come home. And to me, that almost seems like that would just cause more pain. You know, it seems like you would want to kind of just accept the truth and move on. But she says she just feels that he is still alive. 
These slayings have become known as the Wineville Chicken Coop Case Murders. Gordon Stewart Northcott was hanged on October 2, 1930 at San Quentin, California. Christine Collins was granted almost $11,000 against Captain J.J. Jones for his sending her to a psych ward and for his denial at believing her claims that the boy returned to her was not Walter. But Jones never paid her and was only given a four-month suspension for what he had done. Christine, for the rest of her life, she never gave up hope that Walter was still alive and his body remained unfound for the remainder of her life. One more thing I think bears mentioning about all this. In 2008, Clint Eastwood made a movie about this story called The Changeling, starring Angelina Jolie as Christine Collins. The title of Eastwood's film, The Changeling, comes from Irish folklore. It's a belief in Irish folklore that fairies sometimes still human children and replace them with evil fairies. These fairy children posing as human children are called changelings. The idea that Christine Collins' son was replaced by a changeling, an imposter, was clear to her from the beginning. And if the police would have just listened to her sooner, not pushed away her motherly instincts, they might have found Walter Collins in time to save his life. Thank you guys so much for listening to this week's episode of Straight Up Enigmas. I am so excited about this show. I'm so excited about all the support that we've been getting. Thank you so much for all of your support. Please, please, if you could show that support just a little bit more, if you could look up Straight Up Enigmas in the Podbean app, just up in the search bar really quick. Just type in Straight Up Enigmas and click that blue follow button. That would be so super great of you guys. If you could also share this post on your social media accounts to get the word out there to your family and friends, that would also be super helpful. So once again, you guys, thank you so much for listening. This is Straight Up Enigmas. Uh, make sure to tune in next Tuesday for the third official episode.